0: You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, friends. So good to see all of you here in person, and um, hello to all of you who are joining us online. I'm Corey. I'm the lead pastor here at Third, and I'm really grateful to be here with you this morning. Advent, as you know, um, we're in the second Sunday of Advent. Advent is my favorite season of the church here. Uh, It's uh, the season, as you've already heard, of waiting. More than anything else, it is a season of waiting. We are looking back with the Old Testament people of God, imagining ourselves waiting, for the the birth of the coming Messiah. And with all God's people uh, living and dead, heaven and earth, we are looking forward, waiting for that same Messiah, that same Lord Jesus to come again and make all things new. So in this way, the church is always a community of waiting. I love what the theologian Karl Barth says, what other time or season can or will the church ever have but that of Advent? we are Advent people. We are waiting people. As long as we are living in between the first and the second comings of Jesus, we are never fully at home. We are never fully arrived. We are never fully fulfilled. You know, if, if any time that teaches that it's this one, that we are never fully fulfilled. We are never at home. We wait for the one who comes. So the question is, what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? In Revelation, it might seem a little funny that we're in the book of Revelation in in Advent. But Revelation is actually an amazing book to be in an Advent. And it's traditionally a book that has been studied historically in Advent because it discloses to us about what it is that we're waiting for. Remember, Revelation is an apocalypse, which means it is revealing to us the unseen realities that are before us and around us all the time. And it is also disclosing to us the unseen realities of the future, that are to come. And especially as we move into the last few chapters of the book of Revelation, we are seeing the way that this book is disclosing to us the future that we are waiting for. And just like those different um, camera angles and a slow motion replay, we're getting different images and metaphors to describe what it is that we are waiting for at the end of all things. So last week, we heard from John Daniel that great sermon about how we are waiting for wrath. We're waiting for judgment, which sounds scary, but it's actually good news that we are waiting for God's final defeat of evil, that he would destroy all that destroys us. We're waiting for that. This week, uh, we're looking at quite a different image that John uses, and that is that we are waiting for love, waiting for love. We're waiting for a wedding waiting for the great cosmic wedding of the universe. And so our scripture reader this morning is Morgan Thomas. Morgan is going to read mostly from Revelation chapter 19. If you want to open your Bibles and read along with us, Revelation 19. And he's also, because this is such a pervasive metaphor in the last few chapters, he's also going to be reading a few verses from chapter 21 and chapter 22. So let's,
1: let's hear God's word. Good morning, third family. It's great to be with you this morning. Today, our scripture comes from Revelation chapter 19 verses 1 through 9, chapter 21 verse 2 and verses 9 through 11, and chapter 22 verse 17. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven, shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries, but he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen bright and clean was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks. Thanks be to God. One of the unexpected joys of this Pandemic season for me that has been a surprise has been the handful of weddings that I have been privileged to officiate over the last eight months. Um, and these have been the most unusual weddings that I've ever officiated. Without the ability to gather large crowds, uh, for most of these couples, they've had to discard many of the things that we've come to expect of the typical Western wedding. Uh, you know, large. Uh, services and expensive receptions, and uh, tons of people, and flowing food and drink, and uh, Instagram worthy photos. Uh, the, these things have had to be put aside, and instead, the four or five weddings I've done since March have been small, typically only just the immediate family and closest friends. They've been very simple, uh, without the pressure of all the expensive clothing and food, and in my own mind, at least, they've been more focused on what actually matters in a wedding, but ironically, it's often ignored, the relationship of the couple who's actually getting married. And so to no offense to the many other couples that I've married, these, these four or five weddings have been some of the most special that I've ever participated in because they focused on what really, really matters, the promises made by the couple the love that they have for one another and the love of God that is upholding them without all the accoutrements. In some ways there has been an apocalypse that we can see what the wedding is really about today. We are looking at the great truth that we are a people who are waiting for a wedding We're waiting for a wedding. This says in Revelation 197, "For the wedding of the lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready." And I just think of all of John's images, of all the wild images that John uses that we've witnessed throughout this whole book. This image of the wedding is one of the most vivid and beautiful and powerful of all the images that we are anticipating a party, a feast, a wedding celebration. When Jesus, the lamb, the bridegroom is finally united to his people forever. This is what we're waiting for. We wait for love. Now, let me just say this. Whenever we talk about this metaphor of marriage in the Bible, I want to be very sensitive to the fact that even this metaphor, this image can be painful uh, for, for some people. And I think it could be painful for those who have widowed, who've been recently widowed, uh, for those who maybe are single or who want to be married and are not married, for those who maybe who have had a marriage end badly, divorce or separation, or maybe even those who are in marriages now, marriages that are extremely difficult or painful. And I want to just acknowledge that for us to see that and to be sensitive to that fact. And yet I also want us to consider that marriage, even in its most flawed and broken forms, marriage still points to something beautiful it is pointing to something that every single one of us all of us can experience no matter how broken your life is or no matter how broken your marriage is all of us can experience what this good news is pointing to and that is the good news that god loves us that god loves us with this everlasting unbreakable love that that's what god most wants with us this intimate forever unbreakable relationship with us, his people. That's what this image is all about. The love of God, the love of God for us. So, so let's take a good look at this image. Okay. The image of the wedding. Now, hopefully if you've been with us at all since early September, gosh, when we started this book, you'll, you'll hopefully know by now that John, the writer of this book is just a masterful biblical theologian. This guy knows his Bible Through and through. We've said that of the 404 verses in the book of Revelation, he has 518 references to the Old Testament. I mean, this his imagination is just saturated with scripture. And so what we have to, of course, realize is that John didn't just come up with this wedding image um, out of his own mind, just oh, that's an interesting idea that I'll use. No. He is drawing from a rich history of biblical tradition that uses this metaphor. In fact, the, the the image of the wedding or the marriage is an image that is used throughout Scripture uh, to describe God's relationship with his people. In fact, you could put it like this, that the entire story of Scripture is the story of of a marriage. It's a story of promises made and promises broken and betrayal and reconciliation and forgiveness and separation and consummation. The whole story of the Bible is a story of a marriage. It's a story of love. The story begins in Genesis, when God has a wedding ceremony with his people, when he makes a covenant, when he declares promises, as we see happen in a wedding. So in Genesis 17, 17, we see God say this, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. So to Abraham, and through Abraham, his descendants, and we know ultimately through his descendants, the entire earth that God invites into this covenant, God is making an eternal covenant. He shows this how much humanity means to him. This is how much he loves the ones that he has made, that he wants nothing less than a binding, permanent covenant with those that he loves. Thus begins the marriage of God in Genesis. Well, unfortunately, if you keep reading the Old Testament, you realize this ends up being one of the rockiest marriages in history. You thought your wedding, your, your marriage was hard? Uh, it's nothing like this one. <laughs> uh, though God remains utterly faithful to his people, his people stray from his love again and again. They disobey, they rebel, they run after false gods, they build false idols, they turn away from his love again and again. There, in fact, the whole Old Testament, much of the Old Testament is a story of infidelity which is starkly uh, dramatized in the minor prophet Hosea in which God says about his people, my people go after other lovers. They have forgotten their maker. They forget their husband. And so it, it eventually results in this terrible drama in which the marriage of God is in tatters. You know, the bride has gone so far astray has given herself to so many other false gods and false lovers that there seems to be no hope. The marriage seems to be over. The marriage seems certain to end in separation and divorce. But then the unthinkable happens. God, who had every right at this point to end the marriage, to serve up the divorce papers, uh, instead takes a step towards us, takes a step towards his people in love. He becomes a human being. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. He becomes the one that Matthew, the gospel of Matthew calls the bridegroom. God becomes one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the husband who has come back to win the bride. He is the lover pursuing his lost beloved. And he pursues his bride, not just by giving up his divine glory and becoming one of us, sharing our human flesh, but then ultimately going to the place of greatest suffering for his beloved, the greatest act of love, taking on her betrayal, taking on her sin, taking on her rebellion, dying on the cross for her, paying the penalty for her sin, removing her guilt and condemnation, all so that a husband and wife, God and his people could be reunited again forever. That is the gospel, friends. It's a story of love unto death. But then the season of necessary separation happens when husband and wife are physically separated, but spiritually united through the Holy Spirit. And that's the season that we're in now. Uh, As the church, we are married to Jesus, our bridegroom. We know that our bridegroom reigns over all and he is coming. And yet we wait and we wait and we wait. And sometimes the waiting seems endless. Sometimes we wonder whether the bridegroom is even going to come at all. And in the meantime, we suffer and struggle with doubt and with fear and with anxiety and with temptation. And sometimes we even wonder whether he's even there at all, if he's ever coming for us. And this much of the new Testament is about this calling us as God's people to obedience and to faithful. Endurance in this in between waiting time for the bridegroom. And finally, we see at the end of the story, Revelation 19, that final day when husband and wife are united again, and the great wedding feast of the Lamb celebrates the final consummation. Her husband and wife, Christ and his church, are united forever, and the kingdom of God has come. So you see, I just told you the story of the whole Bible, it's a story of a marriage right? The story of what Jesus, the lamb, the bridegroom does for his bride, the church. You can sum it up with uh, what I just love, I think is the most perfect summary of the Bible, the summary of the gospel from Sally Lloyd-Jones, wonderful little book that some of you kids I'm sure know about called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And Sally says this, she said, um, the Bible is about this, God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always, and forever love. That's the gospel. That's the story of scripture. And the reason why this is so powerful is because there's many metaphors in the Bible to describe God's relationship with his people. He's described as a king relating to us his servants. He's described as a shepherd, relating to us his sheep. Uh, he's he's related to called a, a father relating to us as children. And yet those those metaphors are all very important, but they don't go deep enough to the the love of God. God says, this is the kind of relationship I want with you. One like a husband to wife and a wife to her husband. That permanent, that vulnerable, that intimate, that lasting. God says, it's is not enough that you would just see me as a king or or a parent. He says in Isaiah 62, as a young man marries a maiden, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, So your God rejoices over you. I want you to hear every one of you. And I know some of you guys, you might have a hard hard time resonating with this, but just get, get past your defenses. Hear me on this. You were built for this. You were made for this. This degree of intimacy, this degree of connection, this degree of love, you were made for this kind of relationship with the God who loves you. And this is our hope. This is our future. This is what we wait for. We wait for love. We wait for final unification with the God who loves us. So what does this mean? If this is true, what are the implications of this for how we live today? Remember, we've said it week by week, John isn't necessarily giving us new information in this book. What he's trying to do is stir our imaginations, especially for those of us cold hearted Christians like myself who need to be revived and renewed. He wants to use images and our imaginations to stir our hearts back into fervent commitment again. John's goal is that we would live faithfully now in the light of our coming future. So what does it mean for us to live now if our future is a wedding? What does that mean for us? Well, let's just talk about a few implications. First of all, I think that if we really let this, this image of the wedding sink in, it will clarify our identity. It will clarify your sense of self, who you are. Over the last few years, um, since his death, there's, I've noticed there's been a lot of renewed attention um, to this man, Reverend Fred Rogers, who we all knew as Mr. Rogers, as, you know, as I did as a, as a kid. Um, and let's just be honest. I mean, to many people, even to me as a teenager and as a young man, um, he came across as uh, simple, naive, uh, meek, even weak. Uh, and yet, over the last few years, as I have watched documentaries about him and heard interviews and read a couple of books, I have come to realize that this man was a skilled moral philosopher. <laughs> um, the great word over his life, a word that was in, etched in wood hanging in his office, was the Greek word charis, which means grace. This is the word that defined him. And because of that, he was deeply misunderstood in his time. He was accused of um, sort of pandering children, fostering a therapeutic self-help culture, encouraging kids to see themselves special, even though they actually hadn't done anything to prove that they were anything more than mediocre, right? And critics assailed him. He was mocked and made fun of by comedians, but Fred Rogers knew exactly what he was doing. He knew and said again and again, the greatest thing that we could do for another person is to demonstrate and tell them and show them you are loved. That every message that a child needs to know is that you are loved because he knew that these kids grow up, they become adults and the older you get, the harder it is to believe that this is true. Big people in the room, big people listening. Do you remember hearing that? You were loved. You are special. You are precious. Do you believe that anymore? Probably not. And yet, this is one of the great truths that we need to believe. In one of the last speeches that he gave, a commencement speech at Dartmouth College, Mr. Rogers said this to a bunch of Ivy League grads. You don't ever have to do anything sensational to be loved. And you know what that is? Caris. it's grace. And when grace really sinks in, it begins to change you. Friends, look, if a wedding is our future, if, you, if eternal union with our bridegroom is our future, then that means first and foremost, We are loved. We are deeply, unstoppably, unbreakably, everlastingly loved by the God who made us. God has married his life to yours. And if that is true, oh, I'll tell you what, you are special. You are profoundly precious. You are, you are, God delights over you. You are loved. So many, and so many of us have heard this again and again. If you grew up in church, you grew up as a Sunday school kid. In fact, half of you aren't even listening to me right now. You've turned off your brains because it just washes over you. It doesn't even mean anything to you anymore. And so John is using poetic imagery to stir up our imaginations, to break through our bored and cynical, hardened hearts. This is the most important truth that you could ever believe. You are loved. Kids, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine uh, in the spirit of Mr. Rogers. Um, This is Snowy. Uh, Snowy is 37 years old. Uh, He was given to my little sister when she was one. And when Snowy was first came to us as a family, he was bright and he was white and he was fluffy and beautiful. But over the years, Snowy has been through the total ringer. He has been lost. He has been run over. I may or may not have executed him. Uh, (laughs) to torment my sister. Sorry, Kylie, if you're watching. Um, he has been sewn back together. He has had nose jobs. He's had facelifts. He's had whole body parts. That is definitely not his original nose. Um, and y'all look, if you saw this bear, if this bear was just like sitting on the floor and you walk by, you would think nothing of this bear. But you know what? This is one of the most valuable bear- bears on the planet. My sister still sleeps with him. she's got two kids and a husband. She sleeps. With this bear. He is one of the most priceless bears and why my sister has bestowed value onto the bear through her love. He is beloved because he is loved. And I want you to know that this is the incredible truth of the gospel. You may not feel like you have any value. You may feel like you are worthless the world may have communicated to you that you are not special in any significant way. But in Christ, God says, you are, you are infinitely valuable. You are beyond precious. God, and it's not like God doesn't really see you. He knows you completely. He knows your bruises. He knows your brokenness. He knows your sin. He knows the way people have sinned against you. He knows all the things that you hide in the dark. And yet, It says in verse eight, fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. God has clothed you with the righteousness of Christ. He has covered you with his love. And because of that, you have infinite value. You are the beloved. So can you imagine what it would be like if you actually believed this? Because I know we don't. Can you imagine what your life would be like to really know deep down, no matter how dirty or ugly or despicable you might feel, to know that you are clothed in the fine linen and beauty of Christ? To know that no matter what other voices around you might say, you have the voice, the strong and loud voice of the bridegroom pronouncing you as beloved. See, that would just fill you with such security and such confidence, such gratitude, such joy. It would make you live differently knowing that you are loved. Did you note all of the hallelujahs? Uh, As Morgan read, there were four hallelujahs pronounced in this chapter. Did you know that this is the only time in the entire New Testament, the word hallelujah is used? And why would that be, you think? Because that's what happens when you know that you're loved. Your whole life becomes just a big shout of praise. So clarifies your identity, you're loved. What else? What else? What other implication does this metaphor have for our lives? Well, another one is I think it urges us to fidelity. It urges us to fidelity. Throughout the Bible uh, and through this book, the metaphor of marriage is used to urge God's people to be faithful to their husband. Uh, it's, it's, it's a calling for us to be obedient to God. Verse one and two, you can see the contrast between the two prominent symbolic women of the book of Revelation, the, the, the prostitute of Babylon and the bride of the lamb. And the contrast, that contrasting imagery between these two symbolic women is used throughout the book to urge God's people to resist the beast to resist the dragon, to resist idolatry, to refuse compromise and conformity. And this is a big theme of the whole book. As we've seen, God is calling us back from our spiritual unfaithfulness and inviting us back. Remember back the second letter that Jesus wrote? To our first love, calling us back to our first love. And, And this is again, a theme of throughout scripture. God says in the book of Hosea, my people have forgotten me. At the roadside they sat waiting for other lovers. You ran after other gods until your feet were bare and your throat was dry. God grieves over the betrayal of his people. He grieves over the way that despite the way that he's given himself to us, we continue to give ourselves to other idols and other gods. Yet God wants our exclusive affection. And you might, this might sound funny to you. You might say, well, Corey, I'm not giving myself to other gods. I'm not, I don't dabble in, other world religions. You know, I, I come to church and I'm watching church right now. And I, you know, get my kids baptized and pray occasionally. I mean, what do you mean? Well, look, remember what we said a couple weeks ago in scripture, idolatry is not necessarily worshiping in a pagan temple. Idolatry is about the heart's allegiance and the heart's affection. Imagine a scenario in which a couple is married. Uh, but every, you know, every day, the husband goes out and spends all his time hanging out with another woman having lunch with her, having dinner with her, sending her flowers, giving her gifts. And one day his wife confronts him and he says, well, what are you so upset about? We're legally married. I pay the mortgage. I pay the bills. I'm doing my duty. What's wrong with you? And of course, the problem is, is that she doesn't have his fidelity. She doesn't have the deepest affection of his heart. Maybe he has not broken the literal marriage law but he has certainly broken her heart. And this is what God says to his people. Yeah, you go to church, you're religious, you know, you get some of your money, you keep the rules, but do I have your heart? Have you given your heart's deepest affection to someone or something other than God? Sin is not breaking the law, it is breaking relationship, breaking relationship with a God who loves us. And so God is pleading with us here. He's pleading with us with this metaphor. He's saying, as you're waiting, as you're waiting for that final day, turn away from your false, fatal affections. Turn away from the fatal attractions that woo you. They will not save you. Your money cannot heal you. A relationship, even the best one, even the best marriage cannot fix you. Uh, Having successful kids or a great resume or a great retirement or worthy political cause, these things cannot restore your soul Stop giving yourself to false lovers. He says, return to me, return to the one who loves you. And so that's what we do every week. As we come to worship, as we confess our sin, we're crying out like Wesley in that great hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. So friends, if you are a Christian, you are married to God. And this is an exclusive relationship. It demands your full fidelity. And so a Christian does not obey, not obey the Lord because they are afraid of judgment. No, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. A Christian obeys because they want to be faithful to their lover, because they want to be faithful to their bridegroom and they know he comes and they want to be found ready. So fidelity, it urges us to fidelity. One last thing, though, I think that this metaphor teaches us. It also teaches us that it calls us to hospitality. It calls us to hospitality. I just think it's so amazing. You know, we spend a lot of time, especially pop culture does, thinking about what will happen at the end of the world. You know, how's the world going to end? Will it be an asteroid? Will it be a climate catastrophe? Will it be a nuclear holocaust or a zombie apocalypse? You know, what's it going to be? How's the world going to end? And I just think it's so amazing that the Bible says that this is how the world ends, with a party. With a party, specifically a wedding feast, uh, the most fantastic party in history, and it's just amazing, right? After all these epic battles between the dragon and the lamb, between God's people and the beasts, and you know, everything just kind of stops, and people just start to party. It's a great wedding and it's amazing party where tears are dried and death is defeated and evil is destroyed where the bride is finally physically united to her bridegroom. And we see him face to face. This is what we look forward to. This is our hope. This is what we wait for. This is the end. The party. And who is invited to the party? We'll look at chapter 19 verse nine. The angel talking to John says this, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. He's telling him to write out an invitation. He said, you know, get out your pens and paper, you know, sign on to Evite. Send out the invitation for the great party that is coming. And who is invited? Who should he send it to? 22 verse 17 says it. Whoever is thirsty, let them come. Whoever wishes, let them take the free gift. Of the water of life. In other words, every person who wants to can come. Every person who is thirsty. Every person who is broken. Every person who is hungry. Every person who is lonely. Every person who is beat down. Every person who is dragged out. Every person who longs and knows that they are waiting for something that their soul is unfulfilled. Every person is invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. All may come. You know, the, I think the the most unique wedding reception that I have ever seen was the wedding reception of our dear friends, Murray and Lauren Withrow. Some of you know Murray and Lauren. Uh, they're, they're dear friends of Third. Actually, they're mission partners of Third. Um, and when Murray and Lauren got married, they had a, a wedding. The ceremony itself was in the Robinson Theater. And then for the reception, which was out in the park, in Chimborazo Park in Churchill, they just said to all the whole church, to the, their whole, all their neighbors, to all their friends, hey, anybody can come because we just want to party with you. And I tell you, everybody did come. <laughs> it was the, the craziest, most eclectic, diverse group of people I have ever seen, dancing together, partying together, feasting together. And I talked to Murray about this a couple days ago. He said, he said several times, someone came up to him and Lauren and said, Murray and Lauren, I just love y'all. Thank you so much. And then they walked away and they looked at each other and said, do you know that person? No, I don't know that (laughs) person. People were just walking up off the street because they were included. They were invited to the feast. And friends, this is our calling as those who belong to the lamb that we're called to send out the invitation to say, everybody come. All those who are thirsty, you may come. All those who are hungry, you may come. All those who long for something more, you may come. And friends, who are those people? Y'all, the people who aren't here. The people who aren't watching right now. The people who are not sitting in this room. A hundred million people in the United States who have never been to church and who never intend to go to one. And you know who those people are? They're your neighbors. The people you work with, your friends. And they're thirsty. And many of them are hopeless. And many of them are lonely. And so we take the invitation out. We make it known that the thirsty may find the free gift of life at the banquet of the lamb. And so I don't know what that would look like. I mean, you could like just being a loving neighbor to a person. It could be inviting someone to a Christmas Eve service, which has never been easier, by the way. You can literally send them a link and they can stay in their pajamas. (laughs) So... So so we we are people of hospitality who want as many friends and neighbors to be at the party sitting with us at the table drinking fantastic wine and eating amazing food toasting that death has been defeated and that the king reigns That's our future So let me sum up what we're seeing with this wonderful image is that we are waiting for a wedding we're waiting for a wedding We're looking forward to the end of all things when the bridegroom comes and reclaims his bride forever. And what does this mean? This means that first and foremost, we are God's beloved people and we're called to live as God's beloved people. That changes your self-awareness, that changes your understanding of your self-identity. Nothing changes the ego like knowing that you are loved, right? Second, it means that we're called to fidelity, that we're called to serious faithfulness and exclusive allegiance to Jesus and Jesus alone. And third, it means that we're called to hospitality, that we're people who extend the invitation to any and every who are thirsty, especially those who are not among us. On Friday, as I was uh, marrying this new bride and groom, I said to them, look, y'all are getting married in one of the greatest times of uncertainty in all of history. And it's kind of scary and there's a lot of uncertainties ahead of you. But here's what you're doing today. You are making a promise to each other And by making a promise, you are creating an island of certainty and a vast sea of unpredictability in the future. Because by doing these, by making this confident promise today, you are saying, no matter what happens, no matter what occurs, no matter how you change, no matter how I change, no matter how the world changes, here is my promise. I am the one who will be there. I am the one who will love you. And friends, we have a bridegroom and he's with us at this table. And he is saying to you, No matter what happens, no matter what is ahead, no matter what darkness is before you, no matter what valley you walk through, here is my promise that is sealed on the cross. I am the one who will be with you. I am the God who will love you. You are held fast. Your future is secure. You are loved. Let's pray. Lord, help us to believe this because we don't. I know we don't. I know I don't because if I didn't, I wouldn't be so half the time so angry and depressed and frustrated and anxious and insecure and concerned what other people think. And yet this is true. We are the beloved. Help us to live knowing that it is true. Would you revive and refresh our hearts with the knowledge of your great love for us, Help us experience it at this table as we come, seeing the cost of your love for us in the death of Christ. We pray, O oh God, that you would help us uh, to be those who invite others to the feast, that we would not keep this love to ourselves, but that we would extend it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.